Listener Production. The creators of this podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which it is recorded. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the first storytellers of this land. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, as well as any Indigenous people who may be listening today. Hello and welcome to TOEFOP with friends. I'm Charlie Clawson and uh, very excited to bring you this episode. Um, I was lucky enough uh, to get some time with Gabriel Gasparinatis. He is the director of the documentary One Four Against All Odds, which is currently streaming on Netflix. I'm going to use everything in my power to make your life miserable until you stop doing what you're doing. I've never seen this happen before in Australia. There has been ongoing conflict. They're a YouTube phenomenon. It was game over. This is the future of Australian hip hop, right here. We've always had run-ins with police. They just look at us as like criminals. Where we're trying to divert kids from violence, this group was using lyrics of inciting the acts of violence. This video is lit. I'll be honest, I didn't really know much about 1-4. I didn't know anything about who 1-4 were before I saw this documentary, which probably just shows how out of touch, uh, what an old man I am and how out of touch I am with anything that's, uh, that's sort of cutting-edge youth culture. But it's a brilliant brilliant documentary and um, I would encourage you all uh, to go and watch it and then come back uh, for this chat. Uh, we talk about how we got involved uh, with, with the group. If you're constantly being profiled by police and you feel insecure and unsafe in your own community, you're going to get angry. And uh, his background in filmmaking and um, and a, a familiar 80s trope, which he unwittingly uh, put into this documentary. Uh, so without further ado, here is Gabriel Gasparinatis. Gabriel, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me. Congratulations on the film. I actually watched it this morning. Uh, it was a great way to wake up <laughs> to the sound of 1-4. It's a big start to the day, isn't it? Yeah, big start <laughs> to the day. So it's been a month since uh, the film came out. What's the response been like? Um, oh, it's been mad. It's been really, really positive. Um, it's something that, you know, we've been working on for so long and haven't been able to anticipate how people would feel about it. But yeah, the way it's been embraced by, you know, the, um, yeah, just the entire community, you know, the, 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 the community that the film is about, the, you know, the subjects of it and their families and their friends have really been so excited seeing it, but also just like that global Netflix audience, people that might know nothing about it. Um, might have never heard of Australian true music, might know, not know that it even exists. Um, they're really giving some really just positive feedback. Um, it's been, yeah, so nice. And so how did you get involved with this project? I, I read it was, it's been four years in the making. What was your, how did you get started? Um, I mean, my background before this was in directing music videos and mainly kind of in the hip-hop space. I've worked with a bunch of, um, you know, local and international artists um, on yeah, promos and touring, a bit of sort of international touring with artists, filming, you know, behind the scenes, videography type of stuff. And so I think I met Ricky Wonfall's manager through, uh, just through that scene, you know, at a music conference, Big Sound in Brisbane in like 2015 or 2016. Um, we connected, sort of spoke about doing some stuff. And then soon after he started looking after Wonfall, started managing them. They were this sort of group that was starting to kind of pop off, had a bit of attention, a bit of buzz, but, you know, nothing that we really, nothing had happened yet. Um, at least in the story, it was early days. 
Um, so I just sort of was just so, yeah, just blown away by what I heard from them, blown away by the way that they kind of spoke and carried themselves and the type of music that they were wanting to make. And so just started tagging along, you know, filming them, um, seeing where it would go. I mean, music docos are my favourite kind of docos. I'm not a musician and I think it's my way of like living vicariously through, you know, what the filmmaker has captured. But then part of me is always wondering like when did you start rolling the camera? Like is it a case where you just started shooting stuff and then there's an idea that there's a film here or Mm. is it a plan? How did you go into it? I mean, I think on the music doco point what's interesting is we sort of never knew whether we were making a music doco or not and we definitely, I feel like we, we, we didn't, want to make a music doco we wanted to make a doco about musicians and it was really important there's a separation there we're not just trying to you know celebrate and share their music and talk about how cool their music is and um you know create this kind of biopic we wanted to create something that analyzed a far bigger issue or conversation um around that and i think you know by virtue of the the nature of these guys the sensitivities made it hard to film at the start um there were times there was extended periods of time when you know, would be hanging around myself and one of the producers or just myself without a camera, just sort of just being around them, being in the studio, being kind of on video shoots, um, being in their homes and, you know, around their families, uh, not filming anything. I think that, that was a really important part of that process, just to build the rapport and the relationship and the trust. Um, we could easily have just started pointing the camera and, you know, you, you, it, it, it's, yeah, you know, like you, 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 you might not get the best out of someone if they feel you're just there to sort of exploit them by just capturing them. It's rather about building that relationship. Um so there's a long time where we weren't really shooting much. We we're just hanging around, uh, talking to people in the, you know, in, in, in those circles. Um, and like, I mean, we shot, you know, so like, you know, thousand hours worth of footage, most of which is, you know, my kind of shaky camera. You know, I'm not a camera operator, I'm not a DOP. So we ended up cutting a lot of the stuff that I actually shot, went back and did these sort of talking head interviews and, um, you know, licensed a ton of footage from a wealth of other, you know, videographers that are in, in, in that same world doing the same thing. Mm. Mm. I mean, I, I, I uh, have a similar pedigree to you in that for a period of time, my wife's a, a director and uh, we had a production company and we made music videos. And uh, we always said that um, music videos was like our film school. Like she actually went through film school. I started producing for her. And then we realized that, you know, we weren't at a level where we we're going to start getting like, you know, big commercial jobs or anything like that. But we were at a level where we could sort of target record companies and go in and say, hey, you know, we just want to pitch on stuff. And over the course of like four years, we did, I don't know, something like close to 30 music videos. But we really learnt so much. And it feels like the last kind of realm where you can be fully creative because you're not beholden to a script or a certain narrative. You just meet with the artist, you come up with an idea, and then you can pursue it. Do you find it's been the same with the music videos you've worked on? Oh, it's such a good training ground to, you know, become a filmmaker, I think, coming up in, in music videos. It's an opportunity to have so much creative freedom, not have all these kind of, you know, uh, agencies and facilitators and middlemen sort of watering down the creative, but you're allowed to work directly with artists and um, explore so much creativity. There's, you know, there's so little rules with music videos. So, yeah, that was a really awesome way to get into that space. Um, and also just a way to understand the culture and the community that this story was about through that. I'm interested in what, what type of music videos were you making? Uh, not <laughs> not drill rap, then, that's sure. for sure. Much more mainstream. Like yeah, okay. at first we would just, we would make videos just for musicians we knew. So it was just like, you know, like, you know, if you had someone rustled together a couple of grand, you would hire a camera and you go out and shoot stuff. And then 
we sort of got very much in with Sony and we're doing a lot of like pop music videos. So anytime someone won a reality show or something like that, they'd give us a call and we'd go make that music video. And it was very much not an hour in terms of taste or music we'd listen to, but we would always view it purely from a filmmaking point of view, which is like, um, oh, we've never worked with stunts. I wonder if we could work in like a car yeah. crash into this pitch and then work that way. I mean, one of my favourite music videos that I've done was for a clip for Julia Stone, which is, you know, she's a, such an incredible, awesome artist, but so far removed from the drill rap scene. And the video was shot on my cousin's uh, abalone diving ship off the coast of southern Tasmania. <laughs> and it was it was exactly just like, oh, it'd be fun to go spend a week with my cousin on his boat. Um, so, we, you know, sort of spoke with her and she was into the idea and we shot this, you know, narrative, slow, sort of beautiful clip that was, yeah, as, as far away from drill raff as we could go. But again, it was exactly that, like a creative exploration, a chance to do something that was, you know, a bit of fun, a nice little change of pace. Um, so I love, yeah, music videos are such a, a cool way to, yeah, explore creatively, but also just, I don't know, have a bit of fun making something. Yeah. I mean, there is that sense of, like, I think when we were coming into it too, like budgets at that stage were, you know, sort of dropping, like, you know, it's not like the eighties where they'd have like hundreds of thousands sure. of dollars, yeah. you know, and it was, it was more what you could pull together. And it's that sort of independent filmmaking philosophy of, well, what have you got on hand and how can you use that? And at one stage, my wife had this old Toyota Celica, like a 78 sort of fast pack Celica that it was on its last legs. And we're like, well, we want to send it out with a bang. And so we had this idea that we wanted to set it on fire and drive it off a cliff or something, but that didn't seem manageable. So instead we drove out to the Geelong, um, uh, old Geelong power station and we shot like this Mad Max style car chase where we like completely unregulated, no safety, cut the roof off the car, had like our DP hanging from like a seat belt on the side of the car, shooting film as well. Yeah, right. I mean, I've, I had a 99 Mitsubishi Lancer that went through a bit of similar stuff, you know, you <laughs> go through my old work and there's at least three, four videos of myself or friends that have this, 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 this shitty Lancer in it that we were just doing donuts in and attaching cameras to the roof and, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. And yeah, I, I, I love that. The sort of the uh, yeah, telling sign of a, you know, aspiring filmmaker is a shitbox car that appears in all of your work, you know? <laughs> exactly. Um, I think Sam Raimi yeah. still uses his Oldsmobile. It's like a motif he's carried through to yeah, his big Hollywood films these days. So good. Yeah, um, yeah okay. Love that. <laughs> and so now that you are, you know, you're moving into sort of like, you know, big commercial worlds and things like that, like do you have a – is there a philosophy or a style of filmmaking that you kind of go back to? Is there certain filmmakers that you like? Yeah, I, I mean, I've got pretty broad interests in film, which I think is such a lazy thing to say. I just don't want to, you know, pin myself down to one thing. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, the, the whole like, inspiration who I kind of like things hard because I it changes quite a lot. There's filmmakers I always kind of come back to. There's you know local filmmakers who are doing interesting things I really admire, and there's some you know big international stuff that I'm into. I, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, a film that I've watched that's currently on my mind is David Fincher's new The, 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 the Killer, the Fast the Killer, movie. I've yeah. seen it three times in the last like week and a half. I'm obsessed with it. It's such a odd, you know, interesting, specific type of movie, but that's kind of all I'm thinking about at the moment. Um, but I've always been into, I mean, yeah, like beyond that, I've been into a lot of documentary forever. I think Matthew Heinemann's an incredible American documentary filmmaker. He did Cartel Land and Retrograde and really interesting, you know, powerful political movies that I'm just blown away by the access that you get. Um, 
Oh, yeah, what else am I into? I don't know. I mean, I watch a lot of music videos. I'm into sort of a lot of the cool clips that, you know, Lyrical Lemonade do in America. Um, I'm into... Yeah, it's, I, I'm so shit at talking about stuff that I'm into because it changes every single week and I can either give obvious answers like Paul Thomas Anderson or I can kind of be like too, you know, eclectic and <laughs> alienate people or seem pretentious, you know. Well, I had a discussion with a mate who's a, um, a film reviewer and a film critic. We do a, a sort of semi-regular podcast on, mm-hmm. on this show where we, uh, you know, discuss films. And we just did one, which is uh, mainstream versus nuance, which is like, you know, you have your mainstream films that you like to tell people about, which you know are kind of crowd pleasers, but then there's the kind of more like the deeper cuts. And and the film that that I brought up on this episode was um, American Movie, um, uh, uh, which every filmmaker I know who like loves that sort of authentic style, like I feel – there's a, a couple of Australian directors, you know, feature directors who I think, you know, came out in the in the in the noughties, um, who really sort of like Glendon Ivan, who really adopted that authentic authenticity style where and that comes from looking at this documentary where you just have the most amazing characters. And then when I see your documentary, I'm like, oh, when you have like fascinating, interesting subjects. Like it just it just brings the whole world alive. I mean, and that that was a really interesting bit of feedback we got for the doco and I think Alexei Toliopoulos did the sort of Q&A panel at South by Southwest and one of his opening kind of comments, and we spoke about this a bit, was that it doesn't feel like a documentary. And that's how a lot of people are responding to it. They feel it doesn't have... And, 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 and I don't really like that because it sort of suggests that documentaries should feel, you know, uh, slow or boring or tedious or informative or educational. And, you know, I don't think they are because you've got films like American Movie, you've got, mm. you know, films like Cartel Land, you've got this new docuseries yeah. Telemarketers that's just come out that is so you know, anything but kind of slow and rigorous. It's so engaging and visual and, you know, crazy. Well, it feels like we're in the golden era of of documentary filmmaking Mm -hmm. in that, you know, you include series as well because – the, the the way the documentaries are made now and, you know, the the skill of the filmmakers and, and the way that you can use sort of like animation and music and stuff and, you know, 3D imaging and all that kind of stuff to bring like archival photos to life just makes it so much more interesting. And like I used to, I actually worry that I'm getting less inclined to read about something because documentaries sure. are so good now. Oh, totally. Yeah. And it was so fun, you know, going into making my first doco, having only ever made music videos going, well, all I really know is, you know, the support of the production team that I have that know how to make docos an incredible team, you know, Stranger Than Fiction, Jen Pete and like that was, you know, such incredible mentor and support. But also beyond that, all I really know is music videos and, you know, sexy, quick visuals and, you know, the kind of, you know, kinetic energy of, of, you know, rap music. So it was really interesting going into making a doco and, yeah, trying not to just do the doco thing and instead create these sequences that had this momentum and this energy and this sort of, yeah, these, yeah, these music video kind of sensibilities to it. Um, Cause I think that's what people want to see. And I think that, yeah, with, with doco, you can kind of bend the rules and you can, you know, ex- experiment visually in ways that people might think you can't. Um, even with the storytelling and the way you kind of structure and, you know, script it, you can kind of really add all these arcs and, and twists and turns that, you know, you think you can't do, but you really can. And it, you know, it just all makes it all the more entertaining and fun to watch. I guess, yeah, you, yeah, you make a good point because, it, you know, you talk about authenticity, but like nothing can be 100% authentic because there is a director and there's an editor and there's like a composer and there's all that kind of stuff. But I guess it's just more within those moments of um, production, you know, feeling like you have a connection. And I think that that's what is um, so compelling 
about uh, against all odds is the the fact that you know you you get to uh, you get to know these guys and their family and their community. And I've never been to Mount Druitt. I don't really know anything about the like drill or anything like that. But by the end of it, I got a real sense of of all of it in such a short amount of time. Yeah, which is awesome to hear. And I think it's, yeah, look, it's it's shown a lot of people. And what we set out to do with the film was just show a different side to Australia that isn't usually marketed to the rest of the world. You know, there's a very specific version of Australia that film and TV has historically kind of promoted. And I just don't think it accurately represents what is going on. It doesn't, you know, consider the voice of guys like One Four who, you know, have these stories to tell that just have never really been given that that spotlight or any time there has been a spotlight on an area or a group like that, it's been critical, it's been negative. Um, and by no means did we set out to just make a puff piece that just purely celebrates them. We wanted to, you know, really interrogate the story, interrogate their their actions and, and, and their wrongdoings and, you know, face that head on. And we wanted to get balance in there with the perspective of of the police and of the sort of, you know, the, the conservative media that were critical of them. But, um, yeah, it's been so cool seeing that response of people that might not otherwise know anything about this space being like oh i'm really interested in here and you know one four did that too when one four were blowing up you had you know these these you know internationals knowing about mount Druitt before they knew about you know bondi beach like mount Druitt became this kind of you know suburb that you know people in brixton and compton were being like yeah that's our you know that's 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 our version of this place like i think that's just so interesting to see how these guys have completely changed the the face of you know of, of of entertainment in you know contemporary Australia or whatever you want to call it, it's cool. Yeah, I did uh, appreciate the fact that you used captions for some of the lyrics, especially that one about twenty one now being down to twenty, because everyone was so shocked. I'm like, have I missed something? Is this the generational divide where I'm clearly sure. too old to have got the reference? And I was so glad when you had someone come and explain the significance of that lyric straight yeah. afterwards. Oh, even with all the slang, it was funny with some of the yeah production team working on the film. I'd have to constantly explain what an op is, what a shank is, you know, what a uh, yeah, all, all the kind of the the language, which is so interesting in itself, was so yeah funny. Going, how do we you know set this film up so that it doesn't alienate anyone, and that if you know that 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 we can just explain everything well enough so that anyone can get around it and not get caught up in just not knowing what they're talking about or what any of it means. There was a moment too, like you were talking about the police before and there was a phrase that was used that sort of just like gave me real pause, which was lawful harassment. I wasn't aware yeah. that there was such a thing as, as lawful harassment. But then when mm. you sort of see it in practice, you're like, Jesus Christ. I mean, did it take you by surprise? Uh, yeah. I mean, if you think of what that term means and if you sort of yeah like i mean yeah law we, we you know lawfully harassing like like what does that even mean like how, how do you what, what you know th yeah it was and yeah there's moments like that that i think we have in there you know the police proudly talking to their the, the tools that they use and are boasting that these are tools that overseas countries might be very surprised or shocked to hear that australian police would have you know that's another sort of term uh, you know a, a comment that they make in there which I think is, yeah, quite alarming, you know. It's quite alarming to think that that's the way we go about these powers and that's the sort of um, the pride they have in in, 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 in what they can do. Um, yeah, I mean, there's yeah, there was a lot of really interesting stuff that came out of those interviews. It was really interesting to just see that disconnect in these two different perspectives and see how just detached they are from one another, how little, sure, one for understand these kind of authorities and what their intention is, but also how little the police understand what is going on 
in this space and, and understand what is actually happening there and how they could far more meaningfully engage with it. Um, and it's, you know, awesome having characters like Esky in there, you know, the youth worker from Street Uni who is an example of community engagement done well, someone who sort of comes from the community and is, 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 is doing positive things to support and nurture that potential and not just come in and lawfully harass it so it, you know, he, he is the crystallization of all the greatest things about youth workers. If only he'd turned his chair around backwards to show that he was cool <laughs> while he was talking, he would have ticked every box. And Esky, Esky's a stand-up comedian. Esky does stand-up. Esky's a Esky's a rapper. Esky's a, a, a therapist. He's a you know community organizer, a, 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 a social worker. Esky's an absolute you know the, the saint of Mount Druitt, and I think. Yeah, meeting someone like him and spending time with him is just such a privilege. Someone who, you know, is just so in, involved and just cares so much about about his community um, and has, yeah, you know, objectively done really, really good things for it. I think, um, yeah, Esky's the man. <laughs> it's funny too, isn't it? Like you sort of touch on it in the documentary, but this this idea that like with with – with popular music, specifically now with like hip hop, or at least in the last like 30 years with hip hop, there's just been this sort of arm wrestle between, I guess, conservative conservative views of what the music is and what it represents. And the cycle repeats. You know, I remember watching like a Beatles documentary where, you know, they had the police protest. The Beatles were being protested because they, they considered their music was corrupting the youth. And we just see going through this cycle where the establishment seems to have a problem with the youth, especially through the expression of youth culture. Mm. It doesn't even necessarily have to express violence at some points. But, no, you know, I mean, Elvis it, was too it, sexy, weird, right? Yeah, saying, that's right. Yeah. This, this cyclical nature of, of, of establishment sort of trying to suppress like youth voice and also the validity of art, like should art be able to provoke, you know, mm. um, is the expression of violence uh, in, in lyrics an endorsement of violence? Like it's something that I feel like we're never going to get past because there's always going to be an established, like an older established society and then there's going to be the youth culture coming through. T t totally, and, and they're you know yeah af afraid of what young people are into because it's different. And yeah, it's, you know this is Elvis, this is the Sex Pistols, this is the Beatles, this it's is, video games, yeah, it's everything. And and, and it's funny because you know we talk about this a bit, but you know like Australia historically loves to celebrate the kind of the larrikin or the criminal. You know, like we love to celebrate Chopper Reed or you know Ned Kelly or you know Waltzing Matilda's about a sheep thief that you know what is on the run from the coffers like. You know, Chappelle Corby's on Dancing with the Stars. Like we love to celebrate people that kind of have a, you know, a criminal past or or or, or represent, you know, a rebellion. Um, and so it's interesting that with yeah, one four we kind of are afraid of it um, and we don't like it and we kind of try and shut it down and we, we lawfully harass it till it can't you know perform or write a song. <laughs> lawfully harass. Yeah. That, well, there's that phrase again. Yeah. yeah, it did make me think like you know the amount of sporting events I've been to where you know, what the crowd has witnessed has inspired them to violence on each other. But they don't shut down the NRL or the AFL or the A-League or anything like that. Mate, I was at, like, Paul McCartney a couple of weeks ago. The and, like, there was almost a brawl. Like, yeah, sure. like the boomers. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it was interesting because you had this Gold Coast kind of security staff, you know, trying to sort of control this predominantly boomerish kind of crowd. And boomers aren't used to being told no. So, you know, when security were coming up and telling them that they couldn't dance here or there, like, they were getting fired up. And it's like, well, look. You know, if you're going to shut down 1-4, you've got to shut down Paul McCartney. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, he's inciting violence. But, I mean, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. But, you know, we've also seen so much positive feedback from, 
that generation that might not otherwise engage or really like, you know, drill music who are watching the film because it's on a platform, Netflix, where they can easily watch it and are really supportive of it and are really excited about it. Because it's the one thing that unites everyone is, is no one likes when people are, you know, censored or silenced or aren't allowed to sort of, you know, have a voice or have their say. So what's been interesting is seeing a lot of, you know, uh, otherwise, you know, people that might otherwise have conflicting views on things getting around, you know, this story and saying, you know, regardless of how I feel about the music or their past, I think it's unfair that they're unable to do shows. Maybe I'm just, uh, I'm reading into this, but like, it feels like the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail has a particular vendetta. Like I just did a quick Google before we jumped on and like I could not find one positive article <laughs> from yeah. that, pre- that particular organisation. And uh, like, is, do you feel like it's just they are just pandering to their audience? They know what their audience wants to read? Oh, yeah. I think that the, you know, one for the related stories generate clicks. People want to read about it. Um, you know, whether it's sympathetic or against them. Um, I think it's just like it, yeah, it, you know, talking about 1-4 makes, uh, yeah, people, you know, yeah, pe- people want to read about 1-4. So I think there's a, you know, there's, there's an interest in, 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 in posting about it and trying to kind of like find reasons to, to tear it down. It's it, it just, I, uh, the, the thing I kept thinking was like that the harder that the police go and that the harder, the, you know, the press, you know, the, the greater the publicity. Like if I was a kid, I would be like, this is exciting. Like I want to listen more to these guys. Like what is so dangerous about this band that they're unwilling to let them play? Like you couldn't buy that kind of publicity. No, and, it, and it, you know, you could argue that it builds their hype as well. There's sort of the controversy 100%. of the, you know, they were booked to play a small venue that got shut down then they got booked to play a bigger venue that got shut down then they got booked to play an even bigger venue. And, you know, so the, yeah, the, yeah, obviously the hype is growing. I think there is a practical version of it, which is not, positive one for which is that the actual inability to perform you know limits their ability to make money and actually you know survive as musicians so regardless of the hype that it might generate through that controversy it still has this tangible negative effect which is an inability to do shows is an inability to you know make money as an artist in this sort of day and age but oh no without a doubt the controversy is what sells i mean you know the the story of one for as musicians is, is interesting but the story of one for as musicians in conflict with the police is is, is, is why there's a documentary, you know, why we were able to make the film about it because that point of tension is what makes it all the more interesting and not just a music biography but, you know, an actual analysis of this story, yeah. So New South Wales Police, they were obviously happy to talk to you. Like they're featured in the in the documentary. Did they have any concerns, or did they have like any kind of right of um, you know final say on their their, their interviews or anything like that? Um, no, we we reached out when we were you know a couple of years into development um, and acknowledged that we would had started making a film, but at the time it was quite one sided. You know, at the time all we'd really heard from was One Four and you know uh, other industry heads that were sort of sympathetic towards them. Um, so we reached out to New South Wales Police requesting an interview, sort of giving a, a right of reply, an opportunity to sort of say, hey, this is what the film's currently saying. You know, do you want to comment on this and, and get your side in there? And that's what we did. And that's kind of what we included. Um, and I think that some of the things that we heard in those interviews, I was just like, oh, this isn't really helping to balance it out. This isn't, you know, making your that side look very good. This is kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, so that was interesting, realizing that this opportunity to sort of have a say maybe backfired a bit potentially in that it just sort of uh, gave us this information of their, you know, the the, the the lawfully harassing and whatnot that 
it didn't. Are they doing this to all drill groups? Like I know that there's been a few other acts that have popped up in the wake of 1-4's success. So is this like, are they being consistent in the application of this lawful harassment? Uh, It's not as consistent. There's some artists that sort of managed to get away without it. There's artists that might have major label backing that sort of their, you know, their labels are able to sort of help sort of negotiate with the police to ensure their shows go ahead with no issue. Um, but there are other artists that are facing issues from New South Wales Police. There's a Rafa Husky who has had shows shut down over the years. There's um, multiple groups that have yeah had issues with uh, police preventing them from performing. Nothing quite as extreme as one for, and nothing where they have um, faced as much kind of harassment outside of the actual concerts. But the homes getting raided. The sort of you know police Raptor Squad went into Spotify's offices to. Um, to speak about taking one for the music down, you know, years ago. So, so, so nothing that I know about with other artists, um, but there's definitely, you know, elements of it um, out there. And I'm sure, you know, it, it will continue to happen. And I think there are probably definitely stories of other artists that have faced this sort of scrutiny that, that I don't know about. Um, there's a lot of artists now, you know, because the scene has just sort of, you know, boomed and there's so many draw rappers. Yeah. Yeah. And aside from, you know, the hype of, you know, the the police and the, even like the fan adulation and stuff, like how would you describe the guys in the group, you know, um, like having got to know them cameras without the cameras there and stuff and, you know, really sort of had a chance to connect with them? Like how would you describe them? Um, yeah, the, the, the boys are some of the, you know, they're so um, kind and, you know, thoughtful and, so I, I admire their the loyalty that they sort of have for one another. The, you know, it's a group of guys that grew up together. Some, you know, there's two brothers in the in the rap group, but then an extended circle of friends that um, have been, you know, friends since childhood. They met in church when they were younger, and they sort of still stick by each other today through all of this. I think it's a sense of loyalty and community that I definitely kind of have an experience in my own kind of life. Is that sort of like that connection to a group of friends? Um, I think it's really. You know, it's, 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 yeah, I think people are surprised to meet the group and realize how kind of kind and sensitive and, 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 you know, considerate they are. I think there's an image of draw rappers that you might expect this kind of, you know, brute, you know, in, in masculinity or whatever, but it's anything but that. Um, you know, we've spent time in, with their families and, you know, family parties and events and in their home and gotten to know their, their entire families and broader community. And I think, yeah, I have so much respect for the guys um, considering what they've been through. Um, and the way that they kind of carry themselves, and, and their manager Ricky as well, who you know over the years I've 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 spent so much time with, who I think is just so dedicated to his role and has such you know good intentions with everything he's doing, and I think such a thoughtful way of going about his business that I think is um admirable and yeah just so so cool to see in you know an industry that's otherwise rife with shady cats. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's it's almost like. They are not being granted the same separation of their artistic or their stage persona that artists in other genres are granted. Like no one seriously thinks that, you know, Marilyn Manson or well, Marilyn Manson's probably a bad example. He seems like a bad dude is off stage and on stage. But you know what I mean? The image he presents, he's not some satanic, you know, bat eating whatever, Ozzy Osbourne, Alice Cooper. There's always been these artists who like to project an image that is meant to grab your attention and scare you or shock you or, or whatever it is. But there is an understanding that they're a performer and that when they step off stage, they have families, you know, they, they have friends, they, you know, they have normal lives, they've got to pay their rent or their mortgage or, or whatever it is. Yet for some reason, 
you know, they are not being given the same uh, understanding of separation. Yeah, and I think, I mean, part of it's the genre of drill music is about authenticity and, you know, hip-hop as a whole is about authenticity. You kind of, you sing and rap about what you have experienced or witnessed or what you've gone through. And I think that that definitely muddies at the idea that the music's about authenticity and, and realness. And, 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 and that's also an interesting experience that artists then have when they, you know, mature or grow out of kind of the, 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 the mischief that they were up to in their younger years and still want to make the music about something that they're detached from. I think it's an issue that a lot of, you know, big American rappers go through when they make it big and can no longer rap about yeah. the struggle. Because they're Can't now rap you know, being, about being poor no more. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah that 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 stuff's really interesting. Um, how that yeah changes you. Yeah, what you can kind of make music about. I don't know. But yeah. the guys in the group, you know, make the point, and, and it's quite obvious that it's like, well, you know, you're saying to us that you know we need to change our behaviour. This is the clearest path for us out of the life we were living, but you're inhibiting us from doing that. And, and, it, and it's just this strange contradiction where it's like, you know, you want things to improve for a group of people, but only by a certain set of rules. By their terms, yeah. Um, yeah, which is, yeah, it just shows this, again, this disconnect between the two groups um, and the unwillingness from, you know, the authority to sort of see what the positive impact of, you know, music and, and creative expression is, the opportunity for that, that it is, you know, make, uh, being a musician is now a viable career path for so many people in these areas but i think there's still a disconnect that it's a real thing and still this kind of idea that it's all that you know that damn hip-hop music is you know um is no good um which i think is just such an outdated way of thinking um and it's so cool seeing the you know beyond just uh, emergence of other you know rappers and artists coming out of somewhere like mount druid the broader creative ecosystem that's being created by it you know on the launch of the film the night that it came out on netflix we went out for a screening in this kind of creative space in Glen Denning just next to Mount Druid and it was a packed room you know 40 50 young aspiring filmmakers and graphic designers and photographers and you know a, a whole creative ecosystem not just artists but sort of creatives that are supporting artists in, in 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 you know putting work out there and I think that you know one for in some way have helped to nurture or create part of that that creative ecosystem by showing young people in these areas that you know that that creativity is a vile viable career path to go down um and so it's so cool seeing these videographers and photographers and designers and stylists such a cross-section of young people getting into art that might not have otherwise realized that it's a viable career um yeah right. is, you know it's so that's cool why too. that representation is so important right like because you know if you can see yeah. it you can be it but if you you know you might as if you don't know that that is a, a viable career path you might as well dream about being an astronaut like it feels that sure. far yeah. It feels that far out of reach. I mean, there's always that story about the Sex Pistols when they played their first showcase, which, are, you know, like most Sex Pistols shows, was a bit of a schmozzle from what I understand. But the energy in the room is they created like 30 bands from that one performance because people were like, oh, you don't have to be the best musician. You can just get on stage with an attitude and something to say, and that's a legitimate way to a career as a musician. Oh, that's hectic. I wish I already knew that story. I would have probably referenced that in – other interviews beforehand. <laughs> Damn, I might use that though. That's cool. You got anything else? Any other? Yeah. Any other? Have you got any no, other? Yeah, good yeah. I'm, no, I'm all for them. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I love a good music documentary. <laughs> but I, this, I, I think there is like a similarity to that. You know, like in in the doco, they you sort of mentioned that other bands are popping up, or other drill rappers are popping up because of them. Yet they are having an inability to earn an income, and it's like that always seems to be the. I mean, hopefully it's not the the, the case for one four. Hopefully they can start making money from their hard work. But 
you know, you generally have one act that is the the one that breaks through, and they have to cop all the slings and arrows. But they then open the door, you know, for all these other acts to follow through, having sort of tread the path. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you know, there's the, the genre is still very much, or this part of it's in its infancy. You know, it's still early days. One Four haven't even put out their debut album. They put out an EP and some singles, but. So it's early days and it's so interesting to see yeah, where it kind of goes to next. Um, you know, the film's only been out a month, so it'll be interesting to see what what comes from it, you know, how people start to kind of connect with it and, and what people take from it is, yeah, it's exciting. It's a good time to, good time to be part of it. And do you, have you uh, experienced any kind of uh, lawful harassment by association, <laughs> like moments when you were filming when the police were there or even, you know, while you're doing the interviews, were you, was there any kind of cautioning? Um, not really. We always, I think as the filmmakers, we were a step, you know, a step removed from from the subject where, you know, we're, we're yeah, we're, we're, we're a sort of step removed from that. So I think um, nothing that we experienced in the making of it. I think one interesting experience of that which is you know ironic or just like odd was on the the premiere at south by southwest sydney it was one of the sort of gala films there and um at the icc and there was an abnormally large police presence in and around the theater mm. they brought in metal detectors and there were undercover officers in the theater and um and it turned out that yeah that you know the the, the, the new south wales police had reached out to south by southwest and netflix um you know, acknowledging the potential risks of this event going ahead and, and you know, suggesting that they um, install these additional security measures and, you know, fork out for this this larger police presence to be there. Um, I've spoken to the publicist and I know I'm allowed to say that because, I, I, you know, that, that, that is the thing that, that, that actually happened. And I mean, people were there and people texted me being like, hey, we're getting to your premiere and there's metal detectors. Like, what's up with that? And, you know, that was the first sort of version of that direct interface that we had was 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 seeing the way that they kind of approached our premiere and tried to make it a bit hard to you know hard to happen which was an immersive experience for the audience that has seen this one four doco getting frisked on the way in but definitely you know yeah yeah some like a uh, publicity company would pay a fortune for I that know. kind of immersive yeah, experience yeah like are there like netflix logos on the metal detectors is this like a brand activation but <laughs> you know but no it was real and, and and you know that's that's crazy like what a that's not a waste of money. Give that money to Street Uni. I don't quite understand too. I, I wasn't sort of clear to me. Like, had there? I could understand if, like, the first time One Four played live, there was like an all-in brawl, and it took him like six hours to break up. And it's like, okay, we don't want that happening again. But they seem to be policing on the potential for violence, which I don't know how you how you do that <laughs> it's like it doesn't exist it's schrodinger's brawl like yeah. it doesn't exist until it's observed right um is minority report the film where it's like stopping future crime yeah is that the, it? the pre uh, the pre-cogs yeah. 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 yeah that's right yeah it's like that that's a good movie idea it would be amazing it, to find out that yeah. the new south wales police actually have three uh psychics in a pod somewhere like <laughs> kind of predicting 20 years time to be violence at draw rap concerts yeah <laughs> What the hell's a drill rap? Yeah. And clearly, like, the story isn't done. I mean, like, I actually, when the credits were rolling, I was like, oh, I was shocked. I've actually yeah. stopped to check that maybe, is this a Netflix series? Is there another episode <laughs> coming? Because I, I need to find out what happens mm-hmm. next. And, like, is that is that the idea? Are you sort of going to stay involved? And is there a potential follow-up to this? Because it clearly, like, you know, it's, 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 it's only just starting. 
Yeah, no, it continues. And so much has happened even since we finished filming. You know, we finished filming at the sort of climactic moment in the film and then six months later something else happened and we were like, oh, shit, you know, we've got to add that in. Um, and then even up until the release, there were sort of new developments and stories and experiences. And then at the premiere, there was the sort of ordeal of the, you know, that police presence and people are coming up saying, oh, put that in the film. I'm like, we're at the, like, the film's done. Like, you can't put the premiere, <laughs> can't put footage from the premiere in the movie. Like, you know, how are you going <laughs> to... That'd know, be that, amazing. Yeah. Know, just like live stream, like... cut to that, um, yeah. cut to the oh, 100 cops outside the ICC. No, um... Yeah, look, you, yeah, the, the the story continues and there's still so much more of it to tell and there's so many more stories adjacent to it that, you know, I'm hearing about or that are popping up and there's so many amazing filmmakers who are, you know, following other artists sort of starting to go through similar things or other artists starting to kind of blow up and get this attention, this positive attention where they're just waiting for the day that, the you know, they book a tour and it gets cancelled. Um, so, yeah, you could we, we could just continue shooting it. We could totally do a sequel. Um, there's so much more to it, I think. For me, the focus is on just sort of, you know, uh, celebrating this film being out and, and experiencing this and then looking into what I do next, which might be something in a similar world, but kind of different, um, you know, similar themes and ideas, but a slight slight um, departure, so a slight departure from this maybe. Um, but yeah. No, it's still in the world of doc in the world of documentaries? Um, or? A couple of ideas, something that's sort of away from doco, you know, moving into scripted, I think would be interesting. Just so many ways to tell other interesting stories and um yeah so a few a few things in the works but um no you could totally just like we could have we could have never put the camera down and could just like still be filming today and maybe have an eight-part sort of docuseries that will come out in 2027 <laughs> but i think we got to a point where we realized that there was just so much in there and it was just so important to be able to put the film out with what we had because you know we, we, had, we had the climactic moment that we were kind of waiting for that had such a sort of statement attached to it um, and if we didn't sort of use that, then we would, yes, yeah, still be filming today and um, it'll be years away from being done. Yeah, it is the thing, isn't it, with um, yeah. when you're making documentaries. Like you do have this great climax. Like it's, in, it's, a, it's a really great sort of uplifting climactic moment. Hey, look, there's going to be some spoilers. Uh, we're going to talk about the the end of the film. So if you want to check out one for uh, go go to Netflix right now and watch it and then come back and finish the podcast. There you go. I think we've covered ourselves <laughs> so, legally. So with the Kid Leroy walk-on that was maybe not going to happen, um, you know, yeah, we, we was, you know, that, that, that felt like such an appropriate way to wrap up the film when we kind of got word that Leroy wanted them to do the support for the tour. We were like, oh my God, that's epic. They get to finally do their own set in their city and around Australia. And then when that got pulled and they weren't allowed to do the support, we were like, oh, cool. They'll do a walk on, we'll sneak in. It will be this kind of like, you know, defiant ending where they take the stage, but it doesn't quite, you know, it's not on their own terms. They have to sneak in, but they take the stage. And then the first night of the potential walk-on, they weren't able to do it. So then the second night when that happened and it finally happened and I was on the, on stage filming it and one of the producers, Vanilla, was in the front row with an iPhone. Another producer, Aaron, was up the back with an iPhone. <laughs> and then a camera operator, Tom, was up the very back with a, you know, a C300. And it was just such an emotional night because I think, I mean, for them especially to finally be able to take the stage in front of 20,000 people who... And to take it with Leroy, with this sort of old friend of theirs that they had kind of come up with, that they had learned from and, 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 and had these incredible times in the studio kind of in those early days with, it just was this beautiful, full circle, perfect kind of ending. Um, but it still left open this idea that they still are unable to or have been unable to perform a, a headline show in their own state. The only way they can do it is by, you know, sneaking on stage with their mate. Um, still, you know, that kind of... That says a lot. Um, it's still, yes, it's not the perfect ending, but it's a, I think it's a good ending. 
No, it's good because it feels like what will happen now is that now that the the documentary is out there, that that the, there will just be too much public pressure to ensure that they get their moment in the sun. And who wouldn't want to be part of that? You know, if anything, it's just going to drive up excitement to you know see the, the the homeboy heroes come back. And when I say homeboy, I mean home space boy, not homeboy sure. heroes, yeah, yeah. as in they're coming well, back to Sydney. Oh, that time. Really, after I said that, how clunky and awkward that sounds. The homeboy, homeboy but, heroes is that your that's your rap crew? That's your, that's your rap. That's crew. my rap. Yeah, they're home, they're homeboy hero. <laughs> But there was that is, was one thing I found so endearing about the guys was just how important it was to them to give back to their community or to be back and and playing for their fans. Like, why would you take that away from anyone? Like, you know, if if the if the police's concern is about like are they just out to promote violence? Like, listen to what they're saying. Like, listen to what their motivations are. Like, there's nothing more wholesome than what they're talking about. Like it's it's almost literally like they're trying to save the rec center. If it was an eighties movie, like that's what yeah, it's they're, about. They're tearing down the rec center. Yeah, we got to rally yeah. up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, totally. And and yeah, it's funny that you know, yeah, the save the rec center that always kind of comes back into a film. It's like the the the, the, the opening drone shot with a single piano notice and and saving the rec center. Yeah. They're the tropes that you're like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And then it's like, <laughs> shit, we did it. You know, we opened with a drone shot and the piano, um, and you know, and we saved the rec center. Um, <laughs> it's funny. That was the greatest but, moment. I, yeah. I got, I love that. I got goosebumps when they're bringing all the new gear yeah. know, into the street university. I'm like, like fantastic. Yeah. Like it was so good. But it's funny. It's so funny that that is kind of tropey saving the rec. I haven't thought of that. So, oh, there's probably so many other kind <laughs> of tropes that you can find in there that, you know, um, uh, yeah. Cause it, yeah, I mean, it, you know, yeah, you can get philosophical about it, but it's a universal story. You know, it's that whole thing where it's like, this is 100%. A, a story that, you know, you, you, you could, you could, you could transplant this narrative into any context and people will connect with it because it is, is, is something that everyone has some experience of. People know what it's like to be in any of those positions. Well, it's funny too. Like if you watch any of those, um, NWA documentaries or, you know, interviews with Dre now or, or Ice Cube, like, and they're so, you know, especially those two guys from the group, like they had such big dreams for where they, what they wanted their music to be a platform for, you know. And Ice Cube now does like family comedies, you know, like uh, are we there yet and things like yeah. that, you know. So this idea that an artist will only stay in one form, like you to sort of um, suppress that first voice they have and deny them the ability to to grow and change and become whatever they're going to be, like – Dre's a, 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 Dre's billionaire, a billionaire, like tech yeah. tycoon now. Yeah. I know, it's crazy. <laughs> and that all came from where he started. It came from NWA. It came from, you know, gangster rap. It came from, you know, the song Fuck the Police, like that, you know. Yeah, it, 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 exactly. And I think it's so interesting to see such a direct correlation between, you know, yeah, one four and, and NWA and how the story that they're telling and the music that they're making is is just a modern Australian version of that. Um, and so it's exciting to go, oh, you know, can't wait to see Spenny and, you know, in whatever sort of, you know, big, you know, kids movie <laughs> down the track, you know, are we there yet 10? Like, but, you know, these guys have the potential sort of for that. And there's so much talent. Um, there's so much kind of like ambition and drive in, in that group. And I think that they, yeah, like I, I believe they will go on to do these sort of, you know, amazing things and, and, and the music's just a platform to get towards that. 
Well, it's a fantastic movie and, and you and uh, your crew should be very proud of it because it's an excellent documentary. And I just, I'm looking forward to the sequel, Against All Odds 2. <laughs> Against All Odds again. <laughs> the the one four ing Electric Boogaloo. Is it, <laughs> is that going to be? Something like that. <laughs> this time where they saved the rec centre. Where they saved uh, yeah. Now and but now we have to think of another 80s cliche to bring into the sequel. Gabriel, thank you so much for coming on the show uh, and, and good luck uh, for, for your new projects. Can't wait hey, to see them. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Awesome to chat. Listener. If you're a regular listener to TOEFOP, TOEFOP with friends, two guys, one cup, or philosophy, then we're asking for your help. We want to keep the show free, and that means occasionally throwing some ads in. This is so we can pay our bills for important things like, you know, questionable art by James Fosdyke. Yeah, but we don't want to support businesses that you don't care about anyway. That'd be annoying for you, it's bad for us, and it's useless for the advertiser. So what we're asking is to get a bit of info from you that'll help inform the sort of brands we work with. Yeah, the survey is quick, and everyone who does it goes in the draw to win 100 bucks. Well, a $100 gift voucher anyway. I mean, that's still more than we get for this podcast. Your input will help us work with the right brands and keep the show free. There's a link to the survey in the episode description. It closes soon. Thanks, heaps.